All right. Hi, man. Hey, I'm going to steal one of Phil Betts's. We get to have retreat this year. Isn't that great? God is so good. That was always a little bit tenuous through the summer. And uh, one of the things I was able to do is uh, meet with the governor's office once a week um, early in the summer to talk about relationship with the church and guidelines and talked about having camp. Need opportunity to work with um, family leader group and represent our fellowship to the governor. We have a governor who wanted to hear from our churches, so I'm grateful for that. And uh, we thank God for that. It's really good to see you, man. This was not a given thing that we would meet. Um, could have changed on a dime very quickly, but we're glad that you're here. Uh, does everyone have a half sheet of paper with notes? Um, the, the workshops will be handed out at each of the sessions, and so we're doing that this year. John Jenks are in the booklet, um, so we're going to begin our time together. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Is it hot outside or better than, better than it was, right? Yeah, better than anyone do the disc golf today. So how did you do? Oh, come on. Huh? Yeah. I know these guys are from our church, so I can give them a hard time. Anyone do the golfing today? They're probably still golfing. I did a little bit today. Um, trap shooting, anyway, do that today? A little bit? All right, very good. Glad that you're here. Um, Take your notes out, take your Bible. We're going to begin our journey uh, through the Scripture today. What we're going to do is kind of do a little bit of a look at three key passages of Scripture, tie them together to kind of address the premise of the need to have thriving, vibrant, reproducing, healthy churches. Um, When I was a kid, I had the joy of flying on planes fairly frequently, sometimes commercial, sometimes private, and my favorite was puddle jumping because I liked the part of taking off and landing was the favorite part of me. No longer my favorite part, by the way. But as a kid, it was fun to puddle jump, you know, versus the direct route. And my, my wife and I would love to camp together, and we tent camped for many, many years. And sometimes we would go to a destination. But northern time with the kids, we would kind of go this and this and this, kind of hit different spots. We had one trip to the northeast and went to Niagara Falls and the Football Hall of Fame and... Uh, Bar Harbor, Maine, and across the Bay of Fundy, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, the land of Anne of Green Gables. Right? No amens to that? Hey, if, if your daughters are into that, you need to give that consideration. And so we were watching all the Anne of Green Gables films, and I said, do, do, do they even know her here? She's on the license plate, the little red-haired thing. So we spent 5,000 miles puddle jumping over two weeks. Kids were old enough to help us camp, so... As we get older, we, go, we kind of find one place to just plop for two weeks. We like that better. We like the destination thing. But there is a benefit to kind of going on a journey and landing a couple of places to tie things together. So that's going to be my plan today, is to look at three key passages that I think tie together. One is in Acts chapter 2, one is Ephesians 4, and one is in Revelation chapter 2. So that's going to be our journey today with the premise that, God, that Jesus is building his church. And and you want him to build your church, right? That's never guaranteed that he'll build your church. He's building his church. We want him to build our own church. And behind that, he's growing his church, building his church, and a thriving, growing, reproducing church is one that honors him the most. And so we're here because you care about that, right? Um, We haven't always done well at that. Um, Sandy and I were saved back in 1983, I was 28, she was 26. We got saved at kind of the tail end of revivalism. 
that built a lot of our churches in the middle part of the last century, and uh, was kind of tailing off, and we got saved at that time, and uh, we saw churches begin to decline in numbers, decline in number of churches. In fact, since I started six years ago, we've got four churches that have closed, um, and some are in danger of closing. We've watched 37 years of decline in many of our churches, even across the country, regardless of denominational stripe. Uh, we, we've experienced that. It's just the numbers are down, aging congregations, uh, kind of a loss of vibrancy, a loss of Great Commission focus, a, one pastor said, like, cruise control. And we just, I, I met with a public committee, I do that a lot with transition churches, and I asked them, what's your plan for reaching the community with the gospel? And it's not uncommon. One, one several guys said, well, and I explained to them how I believe you should connect with people outside of church and build friendship with them and give them the gospel. And uh, their plan was to hope they come and hope they come back. I said, that's not a good plan. And the church was, is hanging by a thread. And so I explained to them that this is a better approach to actually go with the gospel, connect with people, bring them the God, befriend them, share Christ with them, and then bring the saved people to the family. And they both said, well, that's different. Okay, that's the leadership of the church, and not an uncommon answer, even in churches that would be relatively large, that maybe aren't growing and discipling and actually reproducing by making disciples, maybe people changing churches, maybe assuming that that's real growth, and it isn't. And then they see declining numbers and loss of kids and kind of blaming the culture and blaming this. And reality, we haven't been really making disciples well. And it's just an observation. And we have watched the decline. Even our own church, uh, Grandview Park is now Anchor Baptist Church, used to be 800 people. I remember that. And um, we dwindled to a little under 100. And we kind of lost our focus and really were not doing well at making disciples and reaching people out, hoping that revivalism would come back and all the people would come and flock to our churches and attract them, and they just didn't do that. We had no, nothing to do to replace that. So I, I have watched this happen, and you have seen it too, and so it's where it's alarming. And we have a um, medical pandemic. I think we have a little bit of a church crisis pandemic too that we need to address. So that's, that's our theme. And so it's led to us, say, what do we do as a fellowship to, in a sense, reclaim a little bit what's been lost. And so God has led us to have a three-year push, a three-year focus, and this is the introduction to our notes. A three-year push to the first one was Revive or Die. That was our annual conference theme a year and a half ago. Kind of edgy, kind of like, ooh, is it really that bad? Well, I was reading through the book of Revelation, came to Revelation chapter 3. And, it, and Jesus addressed the church of Sardis and said, you have a name that you're alive, but you're actually dead and about to die. So wake up and strengthen what remains or I'll come remove your lampstand, lampstand like a thief. I said, wow, you have to wake up and revive or you'll die. And that kind of got us thinking, it, it, we, we need a wake-up call. And I thank the Lord that we're getting a little bit of a wake-up call, an awareness that something needs to be done. We, we can't just let it go on cruise control or our church are going to disappear. And so this, this last year, is an online uh, conference because of COVID, was Thrive, or Thriving Churches, Building Healthy Churches. So waking us up, what's it mean to build a healthy church? So that's the theme for this year. And we're trying purposefully to connect the annual conference with this men's retreat. It's mostly pastors and wives that come. Everyone's welcome to come. 
We're trying to carry on the theme here to have that the theme for the year, so thriving, healthy church. And it's interesting, across the board, God is working in the hearts of churches and pastors and people and ministry leaders to sense that. I mean, Dean Taylor wrote a book on Ephesians chapter 4, A Thriving Church, when we've been thinking about it separately. So God is really moving. I'm glad for that. And so next year, we're, we're hoping, Lord willing, to meet in person and have be striving together for making disciples and kind of finish a three-year emphasis to maybe reclaim what's been lost. It, it is really, really serious business that we wake up a little bit. And what, what does God expect of me? How can I can make a contribution to uh, a, a, a vibrant, healthy church? So that's our goal for this time together. So take your notes, and we're going to look a little bit through this. That's a little bit of introduction of where we're going. Get my notes organized here. And so kind of answer the question, what's it, what's it going to take? Uh, what does God expect of me? And uh, so I want to kind of answer that question today a little bit uh, as we go through our notes. So the first point I want you to see, let me grab my notes here for a second. All right, what's the first one, Noah? God, we need a desire for healthy churches. Desires are at the heart of what we do. In fact, I was at the marriage conference that was hosted by Mount Pleasant last winter, and the main speaker said, we feel what we feel because we do what we do. We do what we do because we want what we want. So our desire is a source of conflict. It is a source of, out of our heart comes uh, the issues of life. And so what we want really is at the heart of what we do. And so they're fundamental, they can be a little bit tricky, uh, but desires are necessary to do the right thing. We can be influenced by the world, the flesh, and the devil. God himself influences our heart to want to desire what is right and good. We have to own them. Um, Our desires are what they are. They're what we can't blame someone for anything that we have. And I'm guessing if I ask someone, do you want to have a healthy church, they would say yes. But in reality, sometimes our actions betray us because in reality, I've seen in churches and some I pastors as well, other desires at work that mean nothing about healthy churches. And you might identify with this. I've seen people that want respect or positions of influence. They want to be a deacon, want to be a this because it means something to them. In fact, one of the guys in one of our churches I pastored came and sat in my office and he said, he was just kind of bemoaning. He said, no one ever likes me to be a deacon here. I said, hmm. I reassured him that it was not an anti-him campaign to be a deacon. I didn't, there's not, no such thing. And I said, you know, I said, you know what you need to do? Start connecting with people and lead them to Christ and disciple them because not many people are doing that. And you're, you do well at loving people. He said, I know, but I really want to be a deacon. The other church I was a deacon. I'm not a deacon here. He was so sad he couldn't be a deacon. That's what he wanted from the church was to be respected as a deacon. Some people want to use positions of power and influence. They want to have their way, want to have their say. They want to be respected, want to control things. Um, Some people act as gatekeepers to the church. It's normally not the pastor doing that. In one church I pastored and God blessed and people got saved. It was growing and it was exciting to be part of that. And the deacons reminded me that they were there to protect the church from people like me who come and go because they were the gatekeepers. And so I want to ask you a question. Think about desire. I'm not going to camp here a lot, but 
Is it what you want from the church or what you want for the church? If you want something from it, that's consumerism, a sense of entitlement that will drive how you do what you do and create division, dysfunctionality, and could actually destroy a church. And I would rather know what God wants for the church and what he wants for it instead of I want from it and avoid being a consumer and driving an agenda. And though people mean well, it causes conflict in churches to want something from it. Now, as you give, you'll get. As you distribute, God will give it back. And so as you serve, as you give, as you move from a spectator, consumer, to a giver and an, an investor in people, then God will return a hundredfold for what you invest so as we talk about this, what, what do you want for your church? I want what God wants for my church, which is a healthy, growing, vibrant church, and the role that I want to play in it. And i uh, just challenge you with that as we begin. Number two, we need a description of a healthy church. What would a healthy church look like? And uh, we're going to go to Acts chapter 2 to see what a healthy church looks like, because I think at the, as the first church ever, the first Baptist church of Jerusalem, probably, Beginning of the church, there you go, the beginning of the church age. Now remember, this was unprecedented. They, do, they couldn't go to conferences, couldn't read books, couldn't go to Bible school, how to run a church. Their Bible was yet incomplete. Now they had the apostles' doctrine, had the Spirit of God living in them. Their salvation was fresh and new, but without any precedent, it's amazing how they responded to being the first church ever. It's amazing. And so they become a pattern for a church, and I think this showed that this is possible to have a church like this. Now, it didn't take long for sin to begin to impact that, and we went in Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira, but this is, this is a description of a healthy church. It is not do this, although we can, we can apply things from that. What did a healthy church look like? Well, first of all, a healthy church a healthy church, they, they, they were vocal about their relationship with God. They were vocal about God, His Son, and His Word. They were witnesses to Him. They verbalized it. All of them spoke of the mighty works of God. Uh, Peter proclaimed Jesus, who is both Lord and both Christ. He lifted up His voice. He completed, He compelled them to listen. He made it personal. Um, the apostles taught the Word. They were vocal about God, His Son, and His Word. A witness is not merely the life that we live, but the words that we speak. And of course, one backs up the other, so we're believable. It isn't merely your neighbors watching you leave your driveway to go to church because they don't really care. I've heard people say about thinking about Sunday night services at churches that were kind of struggling. And boy, if we don't have Sunday night church, um, the community will think that we, we don't exist. I said they don't already. It's not going to change. So witnessing is speaking for the Lord. They were vocal about God has sent his word. Secondly, they responded to the word of God. And look at Acts chapter 2. This is the account. Peter was preaching, and uh, they were listening, and God caused a great moving of the Spirit of God to bring many of them to Christ. And this is the reaction in Acts chapter 2 to Peter preaching. They came under conviction, looking at Acts chapter 2, uh, beginning in... Uh, beginning in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for sure that God has made him both Lord and Christ as Jesus, whom you have crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Repent and believe and be saved. They responded to the word of God. And I think, as you think about churches for the last decades, we've had good Bible teaching in many of our churches. Solid pulpit ministries and uh, Sunday school classrooms speaking. But have, have we been filling our heads with knowledge versus doing what God wants us to do? Preachers are supposed to exhort and rebuke with all long-suffering and doctrine to encourage us to do what God wants to do, be hearers and, and not, not doers and not just hearers only. So every time you read the scriptures, every time you hear the word preached, what does God want me to do with what I just heard? If you don't, we can end up in Hebrews chapter 5 with people that by now ought to be teachers and never put into practice and had their senses trained to discern good and evil. And so we need to be doers of the word. But they responded to the word of God. And pastors exhorted people for what God would have them to do. Number three, they were seriously invested in their church. It says, and they, they devoted themselves. After they responded with conviction, salvation, baptism, membership, all the same day. If you're not saved, today is the day to get saved. If you're not baptized, talk to your pastor this week and say, I need to get baptized. Why have we waited years to do something they did in a day? Really? To identify with Christ and his body, to, to identify with him, and they became members of this church, and all of that happened very quickly. But after that, they became seriously invested in their church, devoted themselves as an interesting, intense, powerful word. Um, and it, it, it's just, it means to lean towards something. It means to be strong in a direction, like a tug of war where you pull and you pull and you pull. They weren't apathetic or indifferent or merely attenders. They were strong towards it, leaning in towards what can I do to invest in my church? And that was doctrine, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Apathy will kill us. And, and, and a casual indifference will kill us. Just being in church, sitting, watching a sermon is going to destroy our churches. They invested. They were leaning into it. What could I do? Try this test. Walk to your pastor and say, Pastor, what can I do to be a blessing to you? And as you pick him up off the floor, he might not know what to say. As you invest in people and lean in towards, what can I do to give, to serve, to be a blessing versus waiting that to come to me? They devoted themselves. And this was, it was called the middle voice, meaning they, they invested themselves not merely attending, not casual, not complacent, not comfortable, not content. Every struggling church doesn't do this. It's not that we don't know how. Ever been devoted to something? Something like disc golf or golfing or hunting or fishing? My wife and I took up turkey hunting about 15 years ago, and we went all in. Took a while to do that. We went to a uh, workshop at one of our sportsman's adventures and learned how to, what to bring into the field and what to wear and how to call them. And so we just bought the gear and got the guns and all this shows is your eyeballs. Took a year and a half before we got one. Then my wife said, she said, I want to go hunting with you. Now, now, why she did that? Because we were struggling a bit and some problems in our church. And it was just really, I wasn't handling it very well. 
She said, how can I encourage my husband? So the Lord told her, go hunting with him. And she, she said, I don't want to just sit, I want to shoot. So I took her out shooting in the summer. Um, my dad lent her, gave her his 20-gauge Wingmaster pump, his 870, and so we went out shooting. And she got pretty good pretty quick. And then she said one day, what's that smell? I said, gunpowder. She said, I like it. And I knew she was... Now, you have, now women are picky about uh, aromas. Ever been to Bed Bath, Body Works, and beyond? Hmm? It has to be a certain type of shell, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it. So we went out hunting the next fall. She got a turkey, I got a turkey, and we were in. We devoted ourselves, and we learned how to call, and learned how to pattern, and learned how to shoot. We were all in. And that's what God wants from us in his church. Why would we not? We know how to do that when we're devoted to something. There's a disc golf course um, pretty near our house in Ankeny. And it's amazing what people will play. It's like the mailman. Snow, wind, rain, cold, blizzard, flood. I've yet to see someone in a canoe on Four Mile Creek, but it's been close. The level of devotion is we, we understand devotion. Don't we? If it really is important to us, there's no sacrifice too great, no cost too high. If it's important and we value it, we're all in. And it needs to be that with our local churches. Need to be invested, than they were, in their local church. Number four, they're overcome with a sense of awe about what God was doing. It said, fear came upon every soul. And the fear, the word fear, phobia, could mean one of three things. It could mean to be afraid, could mean to be alarmed, like someone like that just, oh, yeah, made you look. Or it could mean to have a sense of awe where you go, whoa. Ever been awestruck by something where you have no word to describe what you just saw? Like the first time you saw the Rocky Mountains? They're standing in the south rim of the Grand Canyon. You see the Pacific Ocean as a kid. You go up to Alaska like we did working before we were saved and watch 18-foot tides every six hours come in and out. And the water that can pull a tugboat to have it hard to stay in. We saw the northern lights in person. We lived 35 miles south of Mount St. Helens when it blew. I have ash from my driveway to prove it. A cubic mile went up in in dust in a moment. We were camping on the Oregon coast that weekend, had the radio off. This is pre-cell phone days. They actually turned off the radio and get away for a while for the weekend. Came back on a Sunday morning, afternoon, came to Portland and said, that's an interesting cloud formation. I think it isn't a cloud formation. That was the pl- ash plume from the mountain that blew up that afternoon, that morning. And you go, whoa. And you can't find the words for it. They were immersed in a sense of awe about what God was doing in and through people. They were overwhelmed by what God was doing through fishermen, tax collectors, and overwhelmed by a sense of awe. And we, we, we're overwhelmed by that in, in, in nature, in technology. At least we used to be. Our kids will never be amazed with a cell phone. Our, we have a two-year-old who goes like this and plays games. Ever never know what a, what a phone connected to the wall looks like in designer colors, remember? And then, and then we advance to the 
the ones with the three-foot-long antenna. Remember those? The walkie-talkie types? My dad had a bag phone in his car. That was pretty cool. Maybe it was a bat phone, I don't know, but it was a bag phone. And they'll never be amazed, but we can lose our sense of wonder. Have we lost our sense of wonder? I mean, if you are not investing in someone's life individually, watch God open their heart to the gospel, sitting around your table, and they confess Christ, you'll go, whoa. You'll say something like, it worked. The gospel worked and someone else besides me and I was there to watch. It's like when our kids were born, you go, whoa, I was there. I cut the cords. My dad couldn't do that. He was sitting out in another room and then I was handed to him. I was there. And I was there when a lot of people came to Christ and it's just an amazing thing to watch. So let's never lose our sense of wonder. They served and cared for one another. It says here in Acts chapter 2, as you see the text go on here, um, it says they devoted themselves, and then in verse 44, they all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had a need, and day after day attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They served and cared for one another in ways that was unique to them. So their possessions, that's what we're going to do. They were caring for the flock. I read recently a book by Tom Rader called The Anatomy of a Revived Church, which is the things that churches did to turn the corner and get healthy again. I highly recommend it if you're looking through an assessment of where to go from here. And all of them have to happen. And one of them is caring for the family. You know, God designed a local church to be a family. It's a body of Christ. It's a family. It's a building. But this is your family. And as a husband, I try to care for my family, and I hope that we care for our church family. And, but they served and cared for one another in a real, genuine, sacrificial way. Number six, they were living for Christ outside the walls of their church. There should not be a novel idea that we live for Christ outside the walls of our church. We come to church to gather for worship, for equipping, for all the things that we do so we can be sent to live a life outside the walls of our church to impact people for the cause of Christ. And so God gave them favor outside. In fact, he caused people to like them. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? He granted them favor where they thought favorably of them. And so, yes, as we are Bible-believing fundamentalists, God can grant us favor with people outside the walls of our church, and they will be interested and like us and want to be friends with us if we're living for him. Uh, we, we go in and out of our driveway a lot. Our neighbors know that we come and go. We pull, our, we pull in, change our clothes and leave and pull our camper out and go, and they must think we're crazy. They know what we do. And our neighbor lady, she says, when I retire, I want to do what you do. I said, I'm not so sure you want to do... And she says, I know you help people. That's how she gets it. And I, I, I want your life. And I thought, well, so they're open to the gospel a little bit. And we were, my wife was talking with uh, Stephanie, and Stephanie said, um, well, how long have you and Tim been married? And she said, uh, at that time, 40-some years, she said, wow. First marriage? Yeah. She said, well, we thought you had to be a second marriage. And she said, why? 
Well, we listened to you talk, and you're so nice to each other, we thought it had to be a second marriage to be that nice to each other. We didn't think we're home enough for them to listen. And so they're watching. And so God gave his favor with them. But God gave them people that came to Christ. Look at how the text continues. It says, and day after day, God added to their number those who were being saved. Joe Hayes, my predecessor, what, what a good and godly man. He's not doing well health-wise, living in Kansas City with, near his kids. He said, Tim, when a church closes, many things have affected that for probably decades that became unhealthy. But they all have one thing in common, that people stop getting saved. They stop reaching people with the gospel. We know that God saves people, right? But they stop reaching people with the gospel in a purposeful way. And I met with pulpit committees, and they've kind of bemoaned the, the impact of the culture and the need for different music, and be, the, the, the town is kind of declining. And I said, no, we're always bleeding people out the other end, no matter where we live. Uh, we get older and get married, and we have job changes, and we're always losing people for various reasons, but who's coming in the front door by way of new of conversion? They said, I never thought of that. And so the average church today struggles to see an adult conversion at any frequency at all. And I think we just need to reclaim a, a burden for that and make it personal, where I'm connecting with people and building friendships and bringing them the gospel, going to church to be equipped to do that. And, bring the, and it's amazing what God will do and begin to just show love and care for people. Find something in common with them. Find a way to connect with them. Uh, daughter Angela and her husband Tim, they live a couple of blocks from faith. And... Um, They've never done a lot to connect with people, but they're burdened to connect with neighbors and friends. They've, they've heard us do it or burdened to do it. And so during COVID, I have not done well at that. It's been a struggle to find ways to connect with people. But Angela said, uh, she said, Dad, you got to hear this. Our neighbors, we've built a friendship with them and our kids have helped them rake their lawn. So they developed a rapport with them. And we have tomatoes. I just brought them. They're not gardeners, but they have, Tim likes tomatoes. So we, have, we brought them tomatoes, started a conversation, and uh, she and her husband got saved that afternoon. They'd never seen an adult saved by their means ever. Now she's working on her other neighbor. And she is open. The husband isn't. She's doing a John study with her other neighbor, doing a stranger study with her because she got saved and doing a study. This is our, our daughter getting it. God is still saving people, but not by the old means that we used to have confidence in, bringing them to church in droves and walking aisles. Those days are over, at least for now. Those days were never constant. Those great awakening times were specific and targeted and never lasted super long, and we had to go back to the normal way of connecting with people. And so God, they, God gave them people as they went out and connected with people, and so this was a healthy, healthy church. That's a description. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time here in, in Ephesians chapter 4, and Dr. Taylor is going to spend more time there tomorrow uh, in his workshop, but we need to know what God wants us to do. This is, what a, this is a description. So as a member of a local church, let's look to the epistles and find a healthy church, which would not be the Corinthian church. That's what not to do, right? <laughs> the Galatian church, the Colossian church, they all had problems, but this is a good, healthy church we need to know what God wants us to do. So let's look at the book of Ephesians chapter 4. 
That'll be our next place to camp along our journey together. And, and say, what does God expect from me to be a part of a healthy, growing church? What does God want me to do? We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4 and, uh, and see what God wants us to do. Now, we understand that Christ builds his church. He's the source of the growth. But there's an interesting focus on the individual believer here and in that he is God's working through him and through us individually to build his body. So first of all, he wants, God wants to, to, to worship Christ. He wants us to worship Christ. Chapters 1 and 3, half of the book, have virtually no exhortations in them, nothing for us to do. A couple of them, Paul said to remember his suffering and not to lose heart, but basically is one entire praise song to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, bowing the knee, his glory in the church, the riches of Christ. It's all that we are and what we have in Christ. Look at chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians and the first couple of verses. And so that's half of the book is reminding us of our identity in Christ. Um, they were in Ephesus, but they were in Christ positionally. And this is, this is Paul's uh, purpose here. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so he goes on to about being chosen, predestined, forgiveness, inheritance, that we were darkness and now we're light, how we once walked and how we live. My identity is wrapped up in the person of Christ. It's who I am. I live and breathe within him. I live in agony, but I live within Christ. And so this was my identity and my blessings I have in him. And it's good to reflect on that. The longer you've been saved, the easier to forget how wealthy I am in him. The word riches happens six times here. The riches of his grace, the riches of his inheritance, the riches of his glory. We're wealthy in him. All those things happen when you and I put our trust in Christ. Whatever that age would have been, we have riches in him. My identities and my blessings are in him. And so Paul can hardly contain it anymore. He gets to the end of chapter 3 and verse 30. He says, Now unto him who is able to do more abundantly than ever I could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations, forever and ever, amen. Three chapters reminding us to worship Christ and remember who we are in him. That affects everything we do. So he wants us to worship Christ, remember who we are in him. Secondly, he wants us to walk worthy of our calling. So chapter 4 to the end of the book are exhortations about walking. He wants us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He wants us to walk worthy of our calling. Notice that Paul pleads with them, first of all. He pleads with them. He says, I urge you, I beg of you. He said, I beg of you, please. Now, why would he do that? Why does he plead with them? He does that in, in Romans chapter 12. I urge you, brethren, to present your bodies living sacrifice. Why would he do that? Well, I think... Now, Paul is using here not as apostolic authority, but as a brother, he pleads with his fellow brothers to walk the way that relates to who they are in Christ. I think a couple of things. One, it's important. When you beg someone, it's important. 
And second of all, when there might be some resistance, you really push hard because there might be pushing back. The old nature wants none of this, right? Humility, lowliness, sacrifice, service, work, building the body. The devil wants none of that. The old nature is resistant to that. So he pleads with them as a fellow brother because it's important and because there might be pushback. Um, man, can I just chat a little bit? As your pastor or somebody church begins to get an awareness of the need to begin to rethink the ministry of your church, to do an assessment, have we lost our Great Commission focus? Do we really love and care for each other? Do we need to rethink how we do things? Have, have we maybe a sense of entitlement, maybe a, a consumer mentality or a contentment with just doing church? Be careful not to give in to the instinct to push back. And be willing to rethink. Yeah, I know, but it might be changed. You know, repenting is changing. Did you know that? It means to change the mind. So maybe we've embraced some unbiblical expectations of our pastor. Maybe we've abandoned the love that we had of the first. Maybe we have embraced some traditions and made them idols and made doctrines of them. And so I encourage you, as he pleased, to be willing to listen. So he pleads with them. It also, it also says here um, that our walk is the product of our relationship with Christ. It's the product of our relationship with Christ. Therefore means go back to everything that he said. In light of who we are and what we have and the blessing we have in Christ, our walk ought to weigh the same as and be measured up. The word worthy means to weigh the same thing as or measure up to our calling to be in Christ. And it's amazing how our kids know when that isn't true in our life. And a walk here is also the pattern of your life is how we live as a pattern. It's not one life here and one life there, my church face and then my home face. I think a lot of kids maybe abandoned their faith because mom and dad had different types of walks and lived one way at church and a different way at home, and it wasn't really a pattern of life. And so we need to walk in a manner worthy and uh, have it a product of our relationship with Christ and have it a pattern and be consistent as much as we can. Paul gives them some particulars here as they begin to grasp, and Paul is easy doesn't leave us with grasping a concept like walking worthy. Go, yeah, and they say, yeah, and now he begins to meddle with what would a worthy walk look like, right? So putting off, putting on later in Ephesians 4 is, yeah, take off the old clothes, put on the new ones. He said, by the way, quit stealing and go get a job. <laughs> quit lying and tell the truth. And he starts to meddle. So he does that here as we grasp the concept of a walk, and a walk is a metaphor of my relationship with Christ, walking consistently, walking as a pattern, walking as a product. He said, this, here's some examples of that. So I've given you, he, he mentions four of them here in Ephesians 4. One of them is humility or lowliness or esteeming, our, esteeming ourselves lowly and not with eloquence. It's a low, in a sense, esteem of yourself. The second one is meekness or gentleness. And this is strength under control. This is restraint. You could, but you don't. Is accepting ill treatment or unfairness or even God dealing with you in manners we don't like and accepting it without fighting back. 
is exercising restraint. Uh, Dean Taylor at Family Camp 5 spent a whole message talking about these four things, and I, I listened well. Some of you could be or have in your church um, movers and shakers, people that are strong personalities, and maybe you're one of them. That's a good thing. We get things done. We want decisions, and so it's good. But sometimes we don't exercise restraint. And because we could, maybe we just don't. And this meekness says, I don't have to have my say. I'll let, let someone else have their say and let them speak. He said, it's like an elephant. They could, but they don't. You go to a circus, they walk around, they could crush you with one step, but they don't. So we exercise restraint and have strength under control, and we allow other people to have a voice. Long-suffering is having a long fuse, one commentator says, the, the ability to not have a hot temper, to not blow up in someone's face. It's about people, not just things, with people. Because people can be irritating, can't they? If you live long, you will be offended, you'll have expectations not met, and you'll do the same to others. It's just part of being in the human condition. We never reach perfection with that. We irritate people. Husbands and wives, parents and children, and sometimes we do it on purpose. We have a two-year-old grandson. He's our youngest. His name is Finn. And Finn loves Lego Star Wars, Padawan Menace, 22 minutes long. You can play it eight times in a row, and he'll go, oh! When they play the da-da-da, he goes, boop, 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 boop. He likes that film. He sits on the couch in the basement. He turns off the light because the lighting has to be right for him. He's an ambience guy. He's two years old. He goes, turns off the light, sits and just sits there and just waits for this. To, waits. And his older sister, Addie, plays with him. She walks over, click, turns the light off. He gets up, goes over, and, uh, turns it on, goes sit down. She goes like this. And she goes on like five minutes. And he had no clue. She's messing with him. And we sometimes do it in our churches, don't we? Sometimes it's unintentional, but we... This exercises restraint, long-suffering, a long fuse. Scott Owen is here, and I appreciate his ministry. He is gifted and blessed to work with people and churches that are struggling with conflict divisiveness, and um, this is always part of it, not long-suffering. Bearing with one another in love, that's a good one. We, in the sphere of love, we endure one another because we love them. We accept them with loving acceptance and selfless concern because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what walking worthy kind of looks like. And of course, he's walk, talking about a walk that is personal. A church doesn't have a walk. It has a culture. But this is a walk for you and I. So that God wants us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Uh, number three, God wants us to work together. You can't get away from the concept of working in this passage. It comes up four times. And so we walk and we work. We worship, we walk, and we work as part of a healthy church. We work together. It should not surprise you because if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, 
And you get to verse 10, after we come to Christ, it says, for we are his workmanship, we're his poema, we're his masterpiece, we're his Handel's Messiah. We are that to God. We are his masterpiece of design. We're his creation. We are his masterpiece, his workmanship, created in Christ for the purpose of good works, which God prepared that we should walk in them. So walking and working go together. And it used to kind of drive me nuts. Did I say that publicly? Uh, People come to say, what does your church have for me? I said, a lot of work. And they're not interested. This is consumer entitlement mentality. What's in it for me? You have a nursery? No. Want to start one? No. Why not? (laughs) Got a choir? No. Want to start one? No. I want it up and running. Uh, like the Mall of America or something, where you just fit in and, and just go there and just consume. It's more common than you would think. It really is. And it's killing churches. God wants us to work. Wants us to work. Four times. Letter A, working at maintaining the unity of the Spirit. He says, endeavoring... Eager to maintain, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. The word eager means to do your best at, to work really, really hard at, to be put in exertion and effort, and to keep means to guard with watchful care. The unity that we already have in Christ, he created when he established the church, it's there. There's unity, look what he said, there's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The unity is there, we just have the chance to muck it up. It is there in every church because we're one body in him. He said, work hard at guarding it. Work hard at watchful care over it. And we sometimes act like bulls in a china shop with no care for divisiveness. Are you working hard at that? When you have a great idea and pressing an agenda, are you careful that that doesn't divide people? Are you eager to maintain what God created and working hard to watch over with watchful care, like someone tending to a garden, uh, someone watching over their flowers, making sure that they're watered and that something doesn't ruin them. He said, eager to maintain, working hard with watchful care for that peace that binds us together. I think pretty much every declining church is a divisive church. It's divided. Believers just can't get along. So we have to work at maintaining this unity. Second of all, we have to do the work of the ministry. And so he says later that we are to do the work of the ministry. Look down at verse 12, to do the work of the ministry. We work hard at unity. We do the work of ministry. We are workers in Christian service, not to check a box at Bible college, you know. We're working in ministry. We're investing in people. We're making disciples. We're, we're, we're serving God and investing in giving we're workers and laborers in his harvest field. And they say, I can't do that. I have not. Well, no, God made every provision for us to do that. And I've had people say, I have nothing to offer, nothing to give. Yes, we do. 
God made every provision for me to do that. He gave gifts to men, divine enablements for service here. Said he gave gifts to men. He measured them out by his grace and apportioned them as he saw fit. This is gifting for service, not for daily living. And so he gave gifts to men. He gave shepherds to us. He gave some to be shepherds for the equipping of the saints so they can do the work of the ministry. This would be life-transforming for a church to really understand the role of a pastor. He's not there to do the work. His work is to help you do the work. That is transformational. Your expectation of him would change if you know he's there to coach you, train so you can go do the work. That's his work is to for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry so you can be a better worker. He wants to help you train your kids, not just train them for you. He wants to show you how to witness so he does his own witnessing, but he trains you. So he's given us shepherds. So I encourage you today, he's an overseer, so let him have oversight. He's a teacher, so listen when he teaches. He's a shepherd, so let him care for you and follow him. There are ways to keep in check a rogue pastor. They can ruin churches. There's a way to do that. But most of the case, caring, giving shepherds, and you need to follow them. It's all part of the process of growing up. It says until, until we grow up and we mature and become like Christ. So this is a process of growing up to maturity until we have the knowledge of the Son of God, the unity of the faith, there's that unity again, to a mature manhood, the measure after the fullness, so this is a process of growing up into Him. So maturity here is unity and maturity, a full knowledge of Christ. It's actually doctrinal discernment, no longer children tossed to and fro. It's speaking the truth in love. In the realm of love, I speak truth. Not at any hazard, but I speak truth in the realm of loving talking about truth. All centered on the person of Christ, everything's about him. Everything's about him. It's his church, his gifting, it's his body, it's his family. Uh, It's all about him. And then we do the first works, okay? We do the first works. Well, not mentioned here, but in in the book of Revelation chapter 2, this same church needed a letter I was just at 160th anniversary for a church this last a couple of Sundays ago. 160 years, that's Civil War time. You know, pre-Civil War, how cool is that? They didn't last 50 years. Same church, healthy church, and Revelation 2, need a letter from the Savior that said, I something against you. They were working... He said, I know your works and you root out apostasy and you're hardworking and bearing up under trials and you're good workers, but I have something against you. Abandon the love that you had at the first. And so remember, repent, and go back and do the first works. You can be working and not doing the first works, which is the Great Commission. I think that happened to a lot of our churches. We were working. Oh, like a like a combine and just a well-oiled machine, and, but we'd abandon love and we'd abandon the first works. Time to reclaim them. He says, repent, change your thinking, and go back what was abandoned. Ever seen an abandoned building? My wife and I 
honeymooned in Colorado 43 years ago. And we took a Jeep ride to, in the San Juan Mountains above the Timberline. It's ruggedly beautiful, you know. And then you come across a, an abandoned mine. Something intriguing about an abandoned mine with mine shafts and the timbers and eventually, what was that like in its glory days? And all the buckets were going and the explosions were going when they were pulling out all the gold and silver. But they'd abandoned that. It just had a remnant. It was just a shell of what it used to be. So this same church had abandoned love. The first and greatest commandment, loving God, loving neighbor, loving the lost, it abandoned love. So they were a machine. Your combine doesn't love you, by the way. You might love it when it works, but it, it, it's just a machine. So they were working, but they didn't do the first works. If they'd, not, if they'd done that, they would never, never read it a letter. So by that, I mean get involved in people's lives and bring them the gospel and connect with them and find something in common with them outside the walls of church and watch God use you to bring some of the gospel. And you get to be there when they profess Christ and you get to hear it with your own ears. Then you get to disciple them and bring them up. See, I don't know how to do that. Well, you can learn how to do that. We have to do the first works. According to the effective working of every part, liturgy. He said, according to, but rather speaking the truth of love, we grow up in every way to him who's the head, even to Christ. So Christ is everything from whom, he's the life source of the church, from whom, joined and held together by every joint. So we are, in a sense, the ligaments that hold the body together. As you work through the joints of the body, we are the ligaments that hold it together. Held together by every joint with which it is equipped, with each part working properly makes the body grow. And the word in the KGB is according to, meaning to, by the measure of the working of every part. So the capacity for growth is wrapped up in every member's working. It is according to the working of every part. It is by means of us clinging together, growing together, and directly the capacity is decreed by how hard we're working together. In a sense, you can limit the growth of your church by not working and walking with the Lord. And so every one of us matters by the effects of working of every single part. I like when all of my parts are working. I see people with knee surgery, and it didn't turn out so great. And it, it affects the whole body. And you think, it doesn't matter. Yes, it does. And so, the working of every single part. God wants us to wait upon him because Christ is a source. We go to him. We lean upon him. We draw strength from him. We look to him, not waiting for him to work, but looking to him to build the body and grow it through the effective working of every part is an interesting metaphor. Next point, and we'll, we'll wind up here pretty soon. We need to understand the danger of neglect. And I talked about that a little bit earlier. There was a church in Revelation 3 that was a notable church that was living off of its name. 
church in Sardis said you have a name and reputation what people know you for. And some churches are pillar churches that have a name and living off the name, but you're about to die. He asked them to wake up. Another church, this church in Ephesus, was a working church that had abandoned its love, its first love, and its first work. There's a danger of neglect, and who would have thought that this church in Ephesians 4 was that church 40 or 50 years later? Would they ever have seen it coming? And now they had a letter to wake them up and go back and do the first works. There's a danger of neglect, and we've seen churches with 300 uh, close their doors. And you see pictures of the, the days when everything was going well, and within a few decades, there's, it's gone. So better sooner than later is my appeal to you. Begin to, if you look at Revelation 2, and we'll not take the time today, but Jesus gives them assurances that he loves them. I hold the stars in my hand, the pastors, I walk in the midst of the absent, I care about my church, I love my church, I'm alive I'm forevermore. He assures them, but then he gives them an assessment. He says, um, here you're working, but I have this again. Then he gives them an action plan. He gives it to repent and remember and to reclaim. So after that, he uh, holds them accountable. If they don't, he'll remove their lampstand. I love the fact that our churches are working together to be accountable to the Lord and to one another. Churches helping churches. Has to be agreement among people that there that we're going to do this and be in it together and say we need to move ahead and asking God to bless. And so that's some of it a template for reclaiming me what's been lost. And the sooner the better. Churches have a life cycle, sad to say, and the quicker you begin to assess, are we really on track and fulfilling the Great Commission and rethinking our ministry, better start now than before you reach a tipping point, it's too late. And so this is, these are things that we need to really focus on. And of course, the last one that we need to sense our utter dependency upon the Lord, except the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain, they build it. And so this is, I think, what it's going to take, this kind of a template for rethinking revitalizing our churches, and it can begin with you, pastors, men in your church, my walk with the Lord, my working in my church, grabbing the first works again. God can use that to rebuild his church. I'm excited and thrilled to be talking with pastors and people. God is waking us up, and God is alarming us with what's happening and giving us fruit and turning the corner, and it'll take some time to get it back, but I'm thrilled with what God is doing, and you and I can be part of that and reclaiming maybe what's been lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Father, bless these men as they labor for you, as they work in their churches. Encourage them and bless them. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.